We are in a series on the book of Revelation. If you've been with us the last few weeks, um, we, we went through a series on the seven churches at the very beginning. So we're, we're, we've been in Revelation for a little while, but we're only on chapter four right now. So this is a great place to jump in. Uh, and, and don't worry, I'm actually going to give everyone a recap just so we're all kind of on the same page where we're diving in at today. So uh, we are in the book of Revelation. If you're not familiar or if you've heard just a little bit about the book of Revelation, uh, it is typically um, known and, and thought of as this like confusing, mysterious signs and symbols, end time book. And our hope here is to take away some of the confusion and, and, and simplify it down and show that the book of Revelation for the believer is not a book of fear, but a book of hope. That we can have hope in the word of God. We can have hope in Revelation. We can have hope in these end time scenarios and events that we're going to be reading about. Uh, because for the believer, they are hope. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to dive in. So to, to get started, I'll tell you a little bit about the book of Revelation. Um, the book of Revelation was written by uh, the apostle John. Um, as, as we know, most uh, or all of the, the apostles or all the disciples were executed for their faith. Um, the Apostle John, they attempted to execute him. They boiled him in oil. Seems like a great time and all, but uh, he just would not die. And, um, and a lot of tradition says from that time that the whole time he was being boiled in oil, he never stopped preaching the gospel. And so finally, the, they, they got tired of it, and they left him on the island of Patmos to die alone. Uh, it was there on the island of Patmos that Jesus came to him, revealed himself to him, and gave him the words. He revealed to him visions and signs that we now read about in the book of Revelation. So that's where the book of Revelation comes from, is they tried to kill John, couldn't do it, and Jesus showed up and gave him this vision of, of what... Um, what is going to happen. It's, in fact, in Revelation 1, Jesus gives John these words to pin down that will outline the entire book of Revelation. Uh, so first, the message today is titled, The Throne. And so if you take notes or anything like that, it's titled, The Throne. You'll understand why here shortly. We're going to dive further into that. But in Revelation 1.19, Jesus says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, okay? What will take place later? So um, just this will come up a little bit later, but, but this, uh, this, these last words, the NIV translates to take place later. Uh, a lot of other translations translate to after this, but the Greek word there is the word uh, metatalta, okay? Not that important right now. We'll get to it in a few minutes on why it mean, means something. But in this verse, in, this, in, this, uh, in Revelation 1.19, Jesus gives John an outline of what this book is going to entail. And so he says, it will be about what you have seen. And this is a Revelation 1. Chapter 1 is about what you have seen, that John has seen the risen Jesus come to him and reveal to him these visions. That is what John has seen. What is now is chapters 2 and 3. Uh, we spent seven weeks going through chapters 2 and 3 as we did a week on each individual church. Uh, if you guys did miss that and you want to check it out, it is all online. Just download our app, Crossroad Grace, on any of the app stores. Uh, and that sermon series is on there. So uh, what is now was the, the seven churches where Jesus wrote individual letters to each of the seven churches. Those churches were, because I'm a cheater, I have it written down, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so he addressed each of those, and that is the what is now. Now the what will take place after this. This is where we're going to be jumping in today. This is pretty much chapters 4 through 22. It is the rest of the book of Revelation. It is what is going to happen, what has not yet taken place, but will happen in the future. This is the, 
meat and potatoes of the, of the Revelation. This is what, when I talk about book, the book of Revelation, this is what everybody's thinking about. This is the signs and symbols and beasts and angels and, and horsemen and all the, all the shebang. Okay, this is it's what everyone gets excited about, and that is what we're jumping into today. And so, uh, at least one chapter, I can't cover all of it. Uh, but we'll be jumping into that. So if this, is your, this is a great day to be your first day here, because it's basically like we're jumping into a new series as we jump into this new section of the book of Revelation. So with that said, I'm really excited to dive in, but I'm going to go ahead and pray, because I fully believe that if just Jeff stands up here and talks, I'm going to fail miserably. Uh, and so I'm going to go to the Lord and pray that he will be with me as we go through this message. Uh, so if you would, join me in prayer for just a moment. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be present, to be in this place. God, I pray that you'd be with me as, as I go through your word, God, that, that it would just be your word, uh, your, your will, your call that is, that is uh, proclaimed from the stage, Father. I pray that you'd be with each and every person here, Lord. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with them. I pray that you would open ears and open hearts so that we would be open and willing to receive your word here today, Father. Lord, we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, as we jump in, I, I just have a question. I had mixed reviews from first service, so I, I want to see. How many people in here do I have that are just really good with direction? Like you're just, you can just, you know where things are. You can hit the open road and find your way wherever you want to go. All right, right now, point east. Okay, okay. I have a lot of different, a lot of different directions. Mark's cheating. He was in first service. Uh, <laughs> a few different directions. Okay. I will say this. I will be open and honest. I'm not that person. Raise your hand if you're not that person. You're not going with direction. The Holy Spirit allowed the GPS to be invented for you. Amen. God is good. Me too. I am, I am a horrible with direction. When we moved into our house, for the first three weeks, I had to use a GPS to get there, okay? That's, that's the level we're talking about here. I, I, I've been going to Cookville since I was a teenager, and I still use a GPS to get around that town. I, I, I don't know why. I can't find my way around it. Uh, a GPS is great. I love my GPS. Like, I, honestly, I would just stay in Crossville if I didn't have a GPS. Because <laughs> I would never find my way back home. Uh, I, I don't know how everyone did it before GPS, but uh, a GPS is great. It, until it isn't. Has anyone had one of those moments where your GPS got a mind of its own? Let me tell you a story. A couple, uh, a couple months ago now, we, we went over to, to Bonnie and Kirk's house, and, and, and we had dinner with them. Um, and, and it's a, just a part of town, like they don't live like way out there or anything, but it's just a part of town we never, we don't really go to. Um, and we, we got there fine, punched into our GPS, the address, it got us there fine. Uh, we stayed pretty late, probably later than we should have. We stayed to the point that when we got in the car, the kids passed out, which is, you know, always a win. And we got in the car, we're like, ah, we don't know how to get home. And so we taught, we, in Jessica's car, we hit the take me home button. That's a button. All right. It then proceeds to try to take us home. It does the typical calculating, calculating. Okay, go straight, turn left, turn right, turn left. Turn. You do the, the whole GPS thing, right? And then part way through the trip, you know, 15, 20 minutes in, it goes, turn right here. And I'm like, okay, because I obey the robotic voice regardless of what it says. And I turn right here onto this gravel road. <laughs> and I'm like, I know that I didn't get on a gravel road to get here. But maybe this, is a G maybe this is a shortcut that the GPS knows about that I don't, which would not be surprising. And so we continue down this gravel road until gravel road starts disappearing. <laughs> gravel road turns to dirt, that turns to clay, that turns to nothing. 
that turns to bulldozers all around me for some reason. It was at this point we realized we were not on our way home, at least any home we wanted to go to. <laughs> Starting to hear banjo music, it was bad. Okay, so we <laughs> swung around. We, we, we decided at this point we're going to turn around and try not to get stuck because we didn't want to camp out here. Um, and and you know, backed up, got turned around, started heading back down the way we came. And that GPS had the audacity to tell us to make a U-turn. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, needless to say, we did not continue using that GPS. Uh, we punched it into our phones, and Steve, Job got, Steve Jobs got us home, which, uh, thanks for that. Uh, and so we did eventually make it home. But the thing that we had placed our hope in in that moment failed us, right? The thing that we had decided, we trust you to get us to where we want to go, <coughs> failed miserably. Now, this was a funny story that we made our way home, but the truth of the matter is, if you have ever placed your faith, your hope, or your trust in anything on this side of eternity, you know what it feels like to be let down. Yes. You know what it feels like to be hurt. You know what it feels like to feel betrayed, to feel like that thing that you trusted, that thing that you hoped in has failed you. And it looks a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. Maybe it was your job that you had placed all your hope and all your eggs in that basket and then that fell through. Or maybe it was your education. Maybe it was a politician. Heaven forbid, maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was an apologist that you really looked up to. Maybe it was a friend, a spouse, a loved one. You know what it feels like when you've placed your hope in something that fails you? It's an awful feeling. But the sad reality is this, that as long as we place our hope in things of this world, we will continue being let down. Whereas scripture gives us another place that we should place our hope. Paul calls this in Titus the blessed hope. In Titus 2 verse 13, Paul says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, when we continue to place our hope in the things of this world, and it takes a lot of different shapes for a lot of different people. A lot of people think that a certain friend group is what they need to get by. A lot of people think that a certain drink is what they need to get by, or, or, or a certain thing that they have to take is what they need to get by, or a certain person that they need to follow is what they need to get by, a certain person they need to marry is what they need to get by. What we're doing is we're placing our hope in fallible things that can and will fail us. Peter goes a step further and he calls it our living hope. Why? It's because our hope isn't dead. That's what we celebrated last week at Easter, is that our hope is in Jesus Christ, who could not be contained by death itself. He could not be contained by the grave. He could not be contained by the cross. He could not be contained by the tomb. But he is our living hope because he is now alive and he is alive forevermore. You see, the word of God is infallible. It will never fail you. When you place your hope on the foundations of Scripture, you will never have to feel what it feels like to be betrayed again. You will never have to feel what it feels like to, to, for the thing that you place your hope in to fail you because the Word of God never fails. The love of God never fails. You see, there's something much greater for us to place our hope in, and that is the Word of God. And that is in the person of God. That is in Jesus. Because Jesus is our living hope. 
He is alive and is alive forevermore. And his word says that one day he's coming back for us. He's coming back for his church. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at in Revelation 4. Uh, if you want to go and turn there in your Bibles and stuff, you can. Or to be on the app and it'll be on the big Bible in the air above me. Um, we'll be in Revelation 4. We're going to look at a, a, a particular event that it's like an Amazon product. It has mixed reviews, okay? Uh, that is the rapture. The rapture. And so I, I usually get three different uh, responses on this. Some people are really excited. Some people dread it. Some people are tired of people predicting it every 12 minutes. I'm a mixture of one and three. I'll be honest with you. Because I remember growing up, and I wasn't a Christian growing up. You guys know what? Most of you know my story. I wasn't a Christian growing up. But I remember about every big pastor or every word or every comment coming by that this is the end times. It's going to happen. This is the year. It's all over. And then it wasn't. And guess what? As a non-believer, that made me go, hmm, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it does. I'm sorry when someone who's, a, who's an expert on the topic makes a, pro, a proclamation and then it doesn't happen, you kind of lose faith in them. And so what I would suggest, and the way that I look at the rapture is it's coming. I don't know when. Matthew 24, Jesus says, no man will know the day nor the hour. So I don't, it could happen before I finish this message, or it may not happen in my lifetime. I don't know. All I do know is that I have a limited amount of time to accomplish the commission that Jesus gave to me. I don't know if it's through death or through rapture, but I have a limited amount of time for me to get as many people to Jesus as I possibly can. Because all I know is there are people out in that world that are dying every single day that don't know Jesus, that are experiencing eternal torment. That is what I do know. I don't know when Jesus is coming. I don't know when he's pulling up his church. I don't know why, when we're getting our Sayonara card. I don't know. But I do know that I have a limited amount of time to do the work that God has given me. And so we have got to get better, church, collective body of followers of Jesus, we have got to get better at making disciples of all nations. That was the last thing that Jesus told us to do. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is our commission. Predict it if you want. I don't care. All I know is that I have a limited amount of time to get as many people to Christ as I can. And we should be living every day like the rapture could happen or death could happen. Because absolutely both are possible. So with that said, I will not be making a prediction today. I will be telling you what the text says. That is my goal. So let's open up the Bible and jump into Revelation verse, or chapter 4, verses 1 and verses 2. And we'll hang out there for a little bit, okay? Uh, verse 1, it says, After this, I looked... Hold on, I want to stop real quick. I made it four words and we're doing great. Remember, I mentioned earlier, uh, here it is, what will take place after this? The opening to Revelation 4 is after this. It's the same Greek words. It is meta-tauta. And so we see it, it actually begins with John saying, after this. It's almost like he is giving us a guidelines to what will now take place, setting us up for futuristic events about what will take place, meta-tauta, what will take place after this. Now he says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come here now and I will show you what must take place, metatauta, after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. You see, what does John see when he first makes his way into heaven? 
How's the joke? Oh, he sees whole St. Peter at the pearly gates asking him what he's done to get in. No, no, no. I think that at the end of days, we're going to realize, although St. Pete's amazing, he has nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation comes solely through what Jesus did on the cross and through him alone. And so what does John see when he makes his way into heaven? He sees an open door. Now, I don't know if this is because I got to preach on Laodicea a couple weeks ago or, or I don't know, but I just see such a connection to Jesus' final words in chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea. If you remember with me, the church that was considered lukewarm, that received absolutely zero praise at all, he ended with, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and let me in, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. And so what I see in this instance is if you will open the door for Jesus, he will open the door for you. If you will open the door into your heart, if you will let Jesus in, then he will open the door for you and you will be let in. John goes and he sees an open door. But that tells me that for some people there will also be a closed door. And it all depends on whether our door was open or if it was closed to Jesus. Because we read, Jesus himself says, Some will come to me, and I will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. So is the door of your life, is the door of your heart, is it open to Jesus? Or are you simply walking through the motions? Because we live in the, belt, or the buckle of the Bible belt. There's a lot of people going to church every Sunday that don't know Jesus. Now I'm saying they know about Jesus, sure. It's one thing to know about Jesus than it is to know Jesus. There's an, there's an actual, like, if you look at, look at how Jesus called the disciples, the people that knew him the best, what did he say to them? He said, believe in me. No, 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 no. We read in Scripture that the demons believed in him. No, no. What did he, what did he say? Hey, go to, go to my services. No, no, he didn't say that either. He walked up to every single disciple and he said, follow me. Follow me and I will make you. It's more than church attendance, friends. It's more than basic belief. It is actually following Jesus with your action, with your words. It is following him, reading the words in red, repeating what he does, repeating what he says, and actually following him. I read a really great book a couple of years ago that opened my eyes to this. It was called Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. And it was written looking at Jesus as a, a Jewish rabbi, which technically he was. And what it would have looked like and what it would have meant to be a disciple that followed a Jewish rabbi and how they would have followed Jesus. Uh, I read a quote from a, a, an active uh, Jewish man who said that if we were to follow Jesus the way that a disciple would follow his Jewish rabbi, then we would be reading through all four Gospels every single month. That is how much you want to know your rabbi. That is how much you want to know Jesus, is you want to be in his word. You need to be surrounded with his word. You should be accidentally speaking his word in conversation because it is so ingrained into you. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, I'm absolutely not saying that we're all going to be perfect at it. I, I, I'm certainly not. But we should be doing the best that we can to follow Jesus, to be, to be following, putting an active step forward. And yes, following Jesus also looks a lot like discipline. It's not a, a, a word that we love. Is it storming or is Jesus coming back? I don't, I don't know. Okay. I told you all it could happen before the end of the message. We'll, we'll, we'll get more into that. Um, okay, so real quick, we're going to look at the rapture. We're going to look at the rapture just a few minutes, and then we'll jump further into the text. Um, 
And so we see here, when John ascends, he says, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me, right? He says, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. And so we see this, at once he was in physical, and then he was in the Spirit. And so we see this kind of, this, this is a picture of the rapture. Okay, so a few other places in Scripture we see the rapture is Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. And he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Last picture I'm going to look at here is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 18. 16 through 18, sorry. Uh, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I mentioned before that the rapture kind of has like mixed reviews. Some people are excited. Some people dread it. Some people get tired of people predicting it. Some people don't believe in it at all. And one of the common arguments I've heard against the rapture, and there may be more, but the most common one that I've heard is that the rapture, the word rapture is never used in scripture. On that same note, the word Bible is never used in the Bible. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. But also, the word rapture is technically used in Scripture. And so let me, let me tell you how. So uh, we read in, in 1 Thessalonians here, it says that we will be caught up with the Lord. That word caught up there in the Greek is the word harpazo. Harpazo. It, it means caught up. It's actually used 13 different times in the New Testament. Four times it's used to be, it says caught up. Three times it says to, it means to take by force. Two times is to catch away. Two times is to pluck. One time is to catch and one time is to pull. The word harpazo makes its way throughout our New Testament quite a bit. Now, the word harpazo means caught up. But whenever the, the Greek transcripts were translated into Latin, the Latin word that they used for harpazo was the, was the Latin word raptus which is where we get our English word rapture. So we get it from this word harpazo, and I guess more, more accurately to the Greek, the coin Greek, we could be saying that we will be harpazo, harpazoed. It's just not as fun to say, but we will be raptured. That's where we get it. It's, just, it's from the Latin, but it is in scripture, absolutely. We see the account, we see the physical activity. Maybe the word isn't there, but the event is. Okay. So one thing that I want to make sure that we are aware of is that there are two different events that will take place in the end times, okay? There's two different things that will take place. There is the rapture of the church, and there is the second coming of Christ. These are two different events. So often, we, when we talk about them, we talk about them like they're the same event, that Jesus is coming back. He is, but when we read in the scripture, we see that he is just coming down through the clouds, and we will ascend to him at the rapture, which for those of us that are afraid of heights, this sounds terrifying. I'm assuming on that day that Jesus will take care of us, though, and we won't be afraid that day, okay? That is my guess. And so if you find yourself floating through the sky and you're not afraid, you can safely assume the rapture is happening. 
I mean, and if you're just into that kind of stuff, then, well, you have nothing to go by. Uh, me, I will be terrified. But uh, what we see at the rapture is not God, not Jesus ascending all the way to the earth. We see him ascending through the clouds and us being brought up, caught up to him, harparzo, harparzo, that's why I don't say it, us being raptured up to him, and then we will go into our heavenly home, our uh, third heavenly home. There's a whole little section about heaven that I don't have time to get into that was really interesting, but you should, get, you should look up the three heavens. It's not that there's, now I've got to talk about it because I feel like there's misconceptions already. There's not three heavens. Because um, when I originally read this, Paul says in Corinthians uh, that, he had, that he knows someone who, who got taken into the third heaven. And well, there's a misconception that comes along with this that there's like three heavens and there's like one for the super Christian and one for like the regular Christian and one for those of us that just barely slip through. Like, we got this levels, we get bigger mansions, how are we go? Like, no, no, okay. In Scripture, God uses the term, in Scripture, they use the term heaven for creation, for different parts of creation. So the first heaven, we'll read about it in Genesis 1, is that when God separates the firmament from firmament, that, that separation is what we would call the sky, but Scripture uses the word heaven. So the first heaven is the sky. The second heaven is outer space. The sun, the moon, the stars, usually how we see it referred to. And in scripture, it talks about how, I think it's in Matthew, it talks about at the, the end of days, how the stars will fall from the heaven. It's not like God's like, where's my stars going as they're falling out of like his floor? No, no, they're falling from, from the second heaven, which is outer space. And the third heaven is the one we think of, the throne room of God. It is the home of God. And we see this throughout scripture, this being referred to. Old Testament, you'll see it referred to as the heaven of heavens, meaning it is the heavenliest of heavens, because anywhere that God is, is the greatest of the great, right? Um, sorry, I'd have had more notes for that. I hadn't planned to go into it, but I felt like I set us up for failure if I just stopped uh, talking about third heaven. Um, but anyway, that is, that is where that whole, you can study that up. It's a, it's a really fascinating study. But uh, we will be taken to Jesus. I don't even remember where I'm going right now, guys, so we're just going to jump back and see what that said. Uh, we'll be raptured to Jesus. The point is, the point that I'm making here is that there are two different events. Now, personally, I am pre-trib. Um, there, there's mid-trib, post-trib, mid-cycle trib. I'm sure that's a thing. I don't even know. But like, there's a lot of different views of this. There's a lot of different blue, uh, uh, views of this particular theology, this particular doctrine. Personally, from my reading of scripture and, and the, the commentaries and, and stuff that I've studied, this is the view that I hold. Around here, we believe that we have unity on the essentials and we have liberty on the non-essentials. This is one of the non-essentials. The essentials is that Jesus is the Son of God. God is a Trinitarian God. Jesus died for our sins. He rose on the third day. Those are the essentials. Those are the foundations of Christianity that we must have unity on. The other stuff is non-essentials. We can talk about it. We can debate about it. That's that's of unimportance. Personally, I believe in pre-trib. And so from my particular view, I believe that the church will be raptured. And then the the church will be raptured. No man will know the day nor the hour like Matthew 24 says. No man will know, know the day nor the hour that Jesus draws his church up. And now I truly believe, this is not biblical, but I truly believe that the world will find a way to write this off and still find a way to deny God because they always do. Uh, So I believe that half the population will disappear and it'll be aliens or something is what they'll believe. Um, And they'll write it off and then there will be seven years of tribulation. At the end of the seven years of tribulation is when we will see the second coming of Christ. Revelation tells us that when Christ comes back, it'll be in Revelation 19, we'll get to it in a few weeks. When Christ comes back, he'll come with a multitude of saints. And so put it, think of it this way. The rapture, Jesus comes for his church. 
But at the second coming, Jesus comes with his church, right? Two different events that take place. Upon the the rapture of the church, we can absolutely predict the coming of Christ because he's going to come at the end of the seven years of tribulation. But as far as the rapture itself, we will never know. We will never know the day nor the hour. That is specifically what Jesus says. And so that's like every time I hear May 21st, 2012, I'm like, yeah, no, we're safe. Definitely not happening on that day because I feel like Jesus is like, you think the 13th, I'm coming on the 14th. Like you're not going to know the day or the hour. That's what my word says. And his word is infallible. It, it never fails. And so Jesus said it. I believe it. That's, that's where my foundation is grounded. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and jump in. That is the, the consensus of what I wanted to talk about with the rapture. I want to make sure that we understand what the rapture is, that it's not for the child of God. It's not something to fear. For those of us that don't know Jesus, for those that don't know Jesus, sorry, I'm not going to include myself in that one. I do it a lot to be inclusive, but that's not the one I'm including myself in because I know Jesus. Amen. He, he saved me about eight, nine years. My wife will correct me later. Uh, saved me a long time ago. And, and, and my life has honestly never been the same. But for those that don't know Jesus, the rapture isn't a good thing. No. That is the beginning of tribulation. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to jump back in, go back to verse 2, and then we're going to read through 3, and we're going to start looking at what John seen when he entered into the throne room of heaven, okay? Um, So verse 2, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. All right, so when he shows up, the first thing he sees and the first thing he notices before being reunited with his loved ones or, or basking in a zero-calorie amazing meal is he sees the throne of God. Yes. It's the first thing he notices, so he sees God seated on his throne. Now, something I really want to look at, and one thing I want you to think about as we read through this, we, we've, got, uh, we've worked our way now through, we worked our way through the entire Torah, we did sermons all the way through there, um, and, and, and at one of those points, when we were going through Exodus, we really focused in on the tabernacle. Now, a lot of the things within the tabernacle seem pointless, right? They didn't seem like there was a reason we shared messages on it, but it was pointless. But right here, we're going to see as the entire scripture comes around, we're going to see the reason the tabernacle was built the way that it was built, because the tabernacle was an earthly depiction of the throne room of God, okay? We're going to see that as we walk through and see what all John sees today. But one thing I want to look at is is this particular translation. It says jasper and ruby. The original language in several other translations would say a sardius stone. Now, it says ruby because we know what a ruby is. And a sardius stone is very similar to a ruby. It is a red-tinted gemstone. Um, And and so we know what that is. But we kind of miss, when we read it as a ruby, we miss the importance. When we were going through Exodus in Exodus 28, we read about the priest, how the priest wore a breastplate that had 12 different stones on it, Right? Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure Teresa taught on this one, uh, that it had 12 different stones. Now, those stones um, were there to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that the 12 tribes of Israel are the sons of Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. And so the 12 tribes of Israel come from the sons of Jacob. Now, the first stone on that breastplate was the Jasper stone. This was the stone of the oldest son, Reuben. Right? The eldest son, the firstborn son, Reuben. Now, the last stone, the number 12, was the Sardius stone. And this was the stone of the youngest son, Benjamin, or the lastborn. And so even in this depiction, this picture that we see of God on the throne, we see immediately that he is the first 
And he is the last, right? He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the youngest. He is the eldest. He is and is through and is in control of all things. God is the beginning, the middle, and the end. That is who he is. And we see this depicted right here, that he was the first stone and he was the last. Just all telling more and more about who God is. You see, I truly believe that we can believe in the word of God because of the word of God. I know, seems like circular reasoning. Go with me for a moment. If you go all the way to the beginning of the book, it makes sense all the way to the end of the book. And yet was written by 45 different authors over 66 different books over the course of 1,500 years, and yet news outlets in 2022 can't do it with all the technology that we have. They wrote one cohesive story that, went, that spread through generation to generation to generation, through uh, country to country to country, through, through civilization to civilization to civilization. They wrote one cohesive story that tells a story that makes sense, that you see Genesis makes sense with Revelation. Questions you had in Exodus gets answered at the end. It it all forms together to make one cohesive story, and I truly believe that that comes from the work of God, from the mouth of God that he sent through, yes, fallible human beings, but he sent it through them, and they wrote it down, and we have one cohesive biblical holy story. And that's why we can believe the Bible. It's because the Bible couldn't have taken place any other way. Pretty much every other religion has one dude that wrote everything. We have one dude that wrote everything. He's just sitting on a throne still. And he wrote it through men. But it comes together to form one perfect cohesive story. Next we see this rainbow. The rainbow that encircles the throne, which is unlike rainbows that we usually see. We usually see half of the rainbow, right? Now, we know that the rainbow came after the flood, God gave the rainbow to mankind as a promise of his grace, as a promise that he will never again flood the earth. Uh, He will never cause another worldwide flood. And so the rainbow was a promise of grace. And what we see at the throne of God, we actually see the completed rainbow. We see both sides of the promise. We see the promise fulfilled at the throne of God. We see it fulfilled right there. All right, next thing we're going to see as John is in the throne room of God, he's going to give us uh, another detail of what he sees. And he says, surrounding the throne, keep in mind surrounding the throne, were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So the next thing that John sees is he sees 24 elders. Okay, the only other time we see 24 used in a similar situation was back in the temple in Jerusalem there was a a course of 24 priests that worked around the Ark of the Covenant. This is important because the Ark of the Covenant is our uh, direct representation on earth to the actual throne of God. We're going to see that as we continue to study. That that the Ark of the Covenant is our earthly depiction of the throne of God. And working around that in Jerusalem was 24 priests. Now we see 24 elders, but most scholars actually believe, and, and back in, in, in Exodus, they wouldn't have known this. Back in, back in the temple then, they wouldn't have known this, but most scholars believe, and I, and, and I agree with them, uh, believe that the 24 elders depicted here are 12 from the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 from the old and 12 from the new. So we have the 12 tribes of Israel and we have the 12 apostles re- represented there 
represented there. Not John is actually the one there, and he's not in the group. So it is a representation of a union of the old and of the new coming together to form one cohesive Unitarian church. Okay, so that is what we see when we look at the 24 elders and how we would see them back in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, is that they were represented by priests. It's not that God's throne room is representing what we read about in the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament is representing God's throne room. Remember, everything they built and depicted was from the word of God that God gave to them. And now we're seeing, as John sees, the actual thing. Let's not get it backwards. God is not following man. Man was following God. Okay? Always. Man is always following God. Except when they're not, and that leads to all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, We see that everywhere. Let's jump in verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So the next thing he sees is he sees the power of God. He sees the power of God. And this, is, this really lines up with every time we see the heavenly father on earth and what we see. Think of Mount Sinai. When the children of Israel received the law from God, they showed up and there was, a, there was flashes of lightning and there was thunder and there was this power and majesty that consumed the mountain. And that's what they witnessed. And what John sees when he goes up there is, again, he sees this power and majesty of God sitting on the throne. Now, I'll also say, some scholars believe this also means that you're, what they're looking at at this moment, they're seeing the, the rumblings of a storm. They're looking at a storm being built, and they believe this is a storm of judgment that will one day come upon the world. That the storm of judgment will ne- one day come on the world. The next thing he sees is he sees seven lamps. Now, let's go all the way back to the tabernacle. We've seen these seven lamps represented, and I, and I, I kind of want to say it was Teresa or Sam that spoke on this. Um, but we've seen the seven lamps represented in the tabernacle that there was a a candlestick there that held seven candles. And this was representative of the seven lamps that were before God. Now, some people believe that these seven lamps, it says, are the seven spirits of God. We've seen this as a direct representation from chapter 2, where it talked about how the church was the lampstand holding the light, and there were seven churches, each holding an individual light. This could be the light that was used here. Uh, A lot of different kind of views on that, so definitely recommend a study. then the last thing he see, that we're going to talk about right in this section is he sees a sea of glass. A sea of glass, and, and I know for sure I've preached on this one. Uh, because in the tabernacle there was a bronze laver filled with water. Uh, and what it was for is the priests would come and they would wash and cleanse themselves before they entered into the tabernacle to, offer, uh, to, to do an offering, a sacrifice. Uh, and they would cleanse themselves before going in. But what we see in Revelation in the actual throne of God is that it is no longer liquid, it is now solidified. And I believe that is because at the throne room of God, there will no longer be need of sacrifice because Jesus has already died and paid for all sin. We now stand on the finished work of Jesus when we stand in eternity. We're no longer having to cleanse and purify and and do all of those things. But it is now, we are standing on the finished work that Jesus has completed. Okay, 
We're going to finish the chapter out, and then we'll work on closing. Okay, we're going to start in, in, in verse 6, and then we're going to read this last little bit. It's about five verses, uh, and then we will close, okay? Verse 6, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. We covered that. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face of a, like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We just sang that. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So he sees Four living creatures, which have very interesting depictions. Um, and and I, don't, I don't have time to get into it, and, uh, but I'd love to. But if you really want a fun study when you, you get home, go open up Revelation 4 uh, from 6 on. And then open up Ezekiel 1 and compare the two. Um, most believe that these are either the exact same creatures all the way back in Ezekiel or at least very similar creatures to each other. You'll notice some differences, but there's a lot of likeness between them. And we'll see even back in Ezekiel, they were led by the Holy Spirit. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating study. But what we see here is we do actually see these creatures depicted in the tabernacle. Uh, back, in, back in Exodus, we've seen these depicted. If you remember, uh, I said earlier that the Ark of the Covenant was the direct earthly representation of the throne of God. The Ark of the Covenant was a box that had uh, three things in it. Let's test my biblical memory. Uh, it had the rod of Aaron, it had the Ten Commandments, and it had manna that fell from heaven. All right, there we go, won the survey. Um, it had these three things in it inside the Ark of the Covenant. Then on top of it had a lid, and this lid was called the mercy seat. Now, over the lid, it had two uh, cherubim, two angels that folded their wings over and, and held them over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant. We see a, a very similar representation of these creatures that we see circling. So if you think about the throne room of God, you have these four creatures on either side. You have the 24 elders surrounding on the outside. You have the rainbow on the inner circle. You have a, the tabernacle is a direct depiction of the throne room of God that we now see in Revelation. Now, what is interesting is what takes place here. And what's going to take place through the rest of Revelation? You're going to notice that there is, an, there is a huge focus on worship, on worshiping the throne, on worshiping God. And so these four living creatures, these, these believed cherubims, they seem to be, a, a lot of uh, theologians believe that they are an exalted uh, angel, that it's, their job is to worship God and lead worship onto God. We're going to see a great big uh, focus on the throne of God as we continue to study through Revelation. The, we're actually going to see, put it this way, okay, where's my numbers? 62 times, there we go. That the word throne is used in the New Testament 62 times. It's used 47 in Revelation. So 47 out of 62 is in Revelation, and we just read it 12 times in chapter 4. There is a focus on the throne 
and because there is a focus on the throne is because there is hope in the throne. So I am closing um, in just a moment. I want to share a story with you. But before I close, and this one is this one's about my two-year-old. If you haven't met him, you will. Uh, he'll be running out there like a madman. Uh, I'm sure here shortly. Uh, his name is his name is Shepherd. Uh, he goes by Shep Shep and a lot of other things. Uh, one thing that we've always bragged about, and this was our mistake, uh, is he used to be really really good at going to sleep. Like he was just a good baby at going to sleep. Our daughter, not so much. Shep, he was great. From about two months on, you would take him, you'd lay him in his bed, hand him a passy, done. You walk away. He'd go to sleep by himself. It was great, phenomenal. Slept almost through the night from the time he was born, close to the time he was born. He had a little, little episode there where he wasn't. Um, but a couple of months ago, this changed. I think we wished it on ourselves. I don't know. But um, this changed. I don't know. I feel like children get to this point where they start to experience fear, right? For a little while, like, Everything's good, but then they start to kind of experience fear. And so it, it, he somehow got to this point where he would not go to sleep by himself at all. And so what we'd have to do is we would have to rock him to sleep in his rocking chair. And then we'd have to take and lay him in his crib. But wait, there's more because he sleeps like my wife. And the slightest creak or a breath will wake him up. And so like you would fall asleep with him and you'd lean up out of the chair. And you'd Pink Panther walk across the floor. Like, and, and lay him down as gently and as quietly as you could, and you would not make a word, and you take a step, and at your floored creek every single time. And then, wah, 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 you start crying. And so what I had to do at this point is I would have to go sit back in the chair. Now, he didn't want to sit with me. He would open his eyes from his crib, and he would see if I was in the chair. If I was in the chair, he would go back to sleep. If I was not in the chair, he would start crying. And I would watch, because sometimes he'd pretend like he was asleep, and he'd keep his eyes closed for like a minute, and then he'd peek them open. And I'd be like, Shep, close your eyes. More than once I fell asleep in that chair, yes, I admit. But he just knew that when his father was in the chair, he was safe. He, he knew that nothing could get to him as long as his father was sitting in the chair. He knew that no matter what happened, what, what, what took place here, that he was safe because his father was in the chair. That is the same promised child of God that you have. That no matter what this world throws at you, you are safe because your father is in the chair. Your father is on the throne. God Almighty is above all, through all, in all, and he takes care of all because he's on the throne. The promise of revelation is this world is going to get real dark. It absolutely will. It'll look like the enemy's winning. It'll look like culture has won over. It will look like there is no hope. It will look like the entire world is damned. But listen, the hope is in the throne because our Father still sits on the throne. That is the promise we have of God, is that no matter how dark it gets, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what the bank account says, no matter what this life throws at you, no matter how hard it gets, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the throne of God. And our God is sitting on that throne. Our God is on that throne. Amen? And that is the hope that we have. For the child of God, that is the hope that we have. And so I will say this. As we continue to study through the book of Revelation, I hope that you see, child of God, that the book of Revelation isn't mystery and fear, but it's hope and love. But I will say this because I don't want anyone to leave here misunderstanding what I'm saying. The book of Revelation is hope to the child of God, but it is condemnation to those who aren't. 
I truly believe that God is a gentleman. He gives us all a choice. We have the choice. Will we live to follow Jesus or will we not? Think about how cruel it would be if we spent our entire life wanting to be away from God, but then he forces us to be in his presence for eternity. Our God is not cruel. He gives you that choice. He wants, we read in James, he wants all men to be saved. He wants all people to be saved, very inclusive. He wants all people to be saved. But he knows that some will not, that some won't come to him. But you have that choice. So what I want you to do as you leave here, we've studied a lot. I hope that you learned a lot. I had a great, really fantastic time studying this and learning this. But as you leave, what I want you to do is look at your trajectory. I read in a book a couple months ago about the trajectory of an airplane. I don't know much about airplanes, except they're terrifying, and I've had to be in them a few times. But The trajectory of an airplane matters a ton, I mean, clearly, but if an airplane is flying 100 miles and their trajectory is off by just 3%, they will land 600 miles away from their destination. 3%. Where is your trajectory pointing you? Are you pointing your trajectory? Are you living, walking toward Jesus? Or are you walking toward the world? Because your trajectory will lead you somewhere. And every single day you get the opportunity to make a decision. Will you follow Jesus or will you follow the world? Will you give Jesus everything or will you give Jesus some and give the world the rest? That is a decision that we make every single day. Listen, the hope of God is hope to the believer. But it is condemnation to the unbeliever. Because at the end of time, at the end of days, at the end of your life, at the rapture, one of the two, that is when the time of choosing ends. And so where are you going? What are you choosing? I'm going to end with a poem. I read this, uh, I actually read this in a book. Where is it? Here it is. Uh, this is on a tombstone. And it said this, Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I, as I am now, so will you be. So prepare for death and follow me. And now a, um, a visitor was walking by and he's seen this tombstone and he's seen what was written on it. And he decided to add his own verse to the poem uh, with chalk, you know, the, the, the best way to vandalize a grave. Um, don't vandalize graves, friends, it's not good. But he added this verse. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> There's a choice. Are we following Jesus or are we following the world? I'm sorry, are we following Jesus or are we following Satan? Those are the two decisions. And they are in polar opposites, you can't do both. And so what is, where is your trajectory pointing you? Where is your trajectory pointing you? I want you to leave thinking about that. And think about the promise that when we open our door, the door to our heart to Jesus, he opens the door to heaven to us. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. We thank you for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here today. God, I pray that you would convict. God, I pray that you would search out our hearts, Lord, and, and show us all, all the wrongs, all the things we need to correct, all the things we need to fix, all the ways we, all the areas of our life we need to follow you more. God, I pray for a conviction today. And I just pray, Lord, that we would have hope and faith in your word and your promises and that we would know no matter what happens in this world, you are still in control and you are still on the throne and there is no power that can remove you from that throne, Lord. 
Father, I pray that you'd be with each person here. You know our pains, our struggles, what we're facing and what we're going through. I just pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be present with each person here. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.